Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I'd like to welcome you to the Infectious Diseases Society of America podcast series. Today, we will be listening to Dr. David Thomas. Dr. Thomas is Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He will be talking about updates in hepatitis C treatment. Today's topic is uh, updates in HCV treatment provided by Dr. David Thomas, who is from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Before I turn over the presentation to Dr. Thomas, I just want to cover some information here. First of all, as a disclaimer, um, that any diagnostic or therapeutic recommendations and all opinions expressed during the idea to say Hepatitis C Knowledge Network series are those of the presenter only. They do not necessarily represent the views of IDSA. Webinar attendees must use their own independent professional judgment in making clinical decisions. The webinar attendees assumed all risk in using the information provided. The IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network is in full compliance with HIPAA and IDSA will bear no legal liability for, result, for resulting use of the information provided during the webinar. <clears throat> so uh, by way of introduction, I, I want to say that uh, the IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network uh, is a monthly hour, uh, roughly every month, hour-long webinar series uh, that uh, with the intent of educating IDSA members on current recommended practices to treat and manage patients infected with hepatitis C virus. It's intended to provide information on critical knowledge topics to allow you to effectively identify, treat, and manage hepatitis C virus. Um, it's also an opportunity for attendees to interact with HCV experts discussing issues related to complex patient care and effective treatments. Um, you all are able to submit questions uh, in advance as well as during the webinar. Um, I should also say that this is um, this services webinar uh, series and the Knowledge Network is enabled from an unrestricted educational grant from Gilead, Merck, and Vertex. So the last item here before we open it up to the presentation is how we handle questions and answers. Uh, following the presentation, Dr. Thomas will address questions concerning the, the presentation and, and then general clinical questions regarding treatment and management of HCV patients. We, we do have some pre-submitted webinar uh, questions uh, that he'll, he'll start off with, and then we will go to any questions that are posed uh, during the webinar uh, via the um, chat function or the questions function, which are located on the GoToWebinar control panel that all attendees should see if they are dialed into the webinar. We understand that there are some people who are just dialed in via their phone lines and are not able to see the presentation. Uh, at the end of all the questions that have been posed via the webinar, we will open up phone lines and allow any, any um, attendees to ask their questions uh, via the phone. In the meantime, we ask that you mute all your phones, and if you are logged into the webinar and your computer has a microphone, please ensure that it is muted. Um, 
when you pose your question, we ask that you pose it in the form of a hypothetical case mm -hmm. or um, rather than putting the, uh, the expert on um, sort of an awkward position of asking for advice. Um, we will just one other mention is that we will stop the recording of the rep of the webinar uh, when we open up the phone lines and take general questions not necessarily related to the presentation. The webinar uh, is archived on the IDSA website and should be available for uh, viewing uh, next week. And with that, uh, Dr. Thomas, I will turn it over to you. Thanks, Andreas. Let's see, I am having a little problems advancing my slides, so let me just work on that for a second here. There we go. So yeah, it's really an exciting time to be talking with you about uh, guidance in the management of hepatitis C, because just a week ago, DEASLD and IDSA completed uh, the first round of, their, uh, of, a, of a long process in establishing formal guidance for hepatitis C management and getting that onto the, uh, onto the web. So the, the website is uh, available at hcvguidelines.org and uh, contains the consensus of uh, uh, experts from ASLD and IDSA uh, on the management of hepatitis C. Now this whole process was done in collaboration with the International AIDS Society USA uh, uh, who uh, is uh, put together the, um, the, the panel uh, and helped process the, uh, and, and put together the website. So um, I put the date on the top just to emphasize the, the fact that this is going to be an ongoing form of guidance, one that will change uh, as uh, the hepatitis C landscape changes and when we have new developments in the field we'll be able to uh, uh, readily change the, um, the website to make sure that this guidance is up to date. So I, uh, my disclosure is that I do some editorial activity for up to date but I don't have any industry uh, relationships. So what we're going to do uh, it, uh, today in this webinar is just familiarize you with some of the highlights of the, of the guidance that was just released. Uh, we'll do that by more or less following the format of the, uh, of the website and, and you can see that there's a, a menu of, uh, of different um, options and different information that we have there. We'll be talking today uh, specifically about our recommendations for the initial treatment of hepatitis C uh, infections. Uh, we'll also mention retreatment uh, and, and give some examples uh, of the types of guidelines, the type of guidance and the kind of recommendations we have for retreatment of hepatitis C. Uh, and then we'll mention uh, unique populations. And since this is an IDSA sponsored event, we'll uh, give some specific um, examples of HIV co-infected individuals. Let's start out with uh, our, the uh, recommendations for the management of individuals uh, 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 who are being treated uh, for the first time. Uh, now, I'm going to come back to this point um, before, uh, at the end, but I also want to emphasize that uh, 
what, what I'm not going to talk about, which is that uh, there are some sections uh, that are still being constructed. And in particular, we're still formulating uh, a consensus on uh, which patients should be treated and when. Uh, and so what I'm talking about today and what's available on the website is information that assumes a decision to treat has already been made. So you already know you're going to provide treatment for a patient. And then this uh, um, website uh, and the information provided to date tells you how to do that, how to treat. There will be in several months information on our consensus on whom to treat and when to treat. But right now, uh, we've assumed that that decision has already been made. Okay, so now let's go into the initial treatment. This is uh, the, the recommendation for the initial uh, regimen for treatment-naive patients who are being treated for the first time with hepatitis C and genotype 1 who are eligible to receive interferon. And the recommendation is daily cefosbuvir and weight-based ribavirin plus weekly pegylated interferon for 12 weeks. This matches a recent um, FDA indication that was given uh, to, to cefosbuvir for use with pegylated interferon and ribavirin for 12 weeks. You can see the rating, class 1, which means there's a, a widespread uh, agreement among experts uh, and a strong uh, uh, recommendation. And the level of evidence is A, uh, coming from randomized controlled uh, uh, trials or the equivalent. So, for example, one of the uh, uh, major forms of evidence to support this uh, recommendation uh, are these data that uh, reflect the use of cefosbuvir, pegylated interferon, and ribavirin uh, for 12 weeks for patients with uh, uh, not just genotype 1, uh, as a matter of fact, but also genotypes 4, 5, and 6. 327 patients who were treated on the y-axis, if you're not familiar with these kinds of figures, is the sustained virologic response rate. That refers to the proportion of individuals who became HCV RNA undetected while on treatment and remained HCV RNA detect undetectable uh, 12 weeks afterwards. And we consider that to be tantamount to a cure since those individuals uh, very rarely have viral uh, resurgence after that 12-week uh, time point. And in addition, since those individuals have marked reductions in the likelihood of hepatocellular carcinoma, liver decompensation, and death. So you can see that the sustained virologic response rates, even in persons who had cirrhosis before they started treatment, were high with this 12-week regimen. They were high uh, without regard for uh, the uh, uh, IL-28 genotype uh, and in various uh, uh, racial groups. So for that reason, uh, the panel des uh, decided that uh, cefosbuvir, pegylated interferon, and ribavirin would be uh, a recommended treatment for persons with genotype 1 infection. It's also important to emphasize that the side effect profile was quite good for this regimen and chiefly reflected what experience we'd already had with the use of pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Notice in this column, uh, you can see that the 12-week duration uh, of 
uh, pegylated interferon ribavirin tafosbuvir had a side effect profile that was um, uh, uh, principally reflective of the interferon with fatigue, uh, uh, some febrile uh, influenza-like uh, kind of symptoms, uh, and uh, was consistent with what we've seen with other hepatitis C treatments. No uh, appreciable added effect of the cefospivir. Now later we'll talk about using cefospivir without interferon, and as you can see, those interferon side effects, not surprisingly, are largely gone, and the side effect profile often reflects what you'd expect with ribavirin in this group. And if you compare those, of course, over here to the pegylated interferon and ribavirin with no cefospivir, you can see some of those contrasts. Now, in uh, another recommendation for genotype 1 infected individuals who had never been treated before uh, is the use of cefospivir and semipravir with or without weight-based ribavirin. And notice that this is recommended for interferon-ineligible patients with genotype 1 infection, irrespective of the um, uh, hepatitis genotype 1 subtype. The rationale for that is uh, exclusively uh, comes from this study of 167 individuals uh, that uh, with genotype 1 who uh, really represent two distinct cohorts. One, a group of individuals that had previously been treated with pegylated interferon and ribavirin and had low fibrosis stages, uh, F0, 1, or 2. There were 80 such individuals. Or a second group of individuals who were being treated for the first time and or null responders but these individuals had more advanced liver disease, F3 or 4, and there were 87 such individuals. The 167 individuals collectively were being treated for either 24 weeks or 12 weeks uh, and either had ribavirin or did not have ribavirin. So we're looking at 12 to 24 weeks of treatment and with or without uh, ribavirin. So and I'm going to show you the data in the two cohorts separately. Cohort 1 uh, uh, reflecting those individuals with low-stage disease who had previously uh, failed pegylated interferon-based treatment. And once again, the sustained virologic response rates are shown on the y-axis. And you can see that the rates of response are very high, shown in the blue. And even in the arm uh, where there was a lower sustained virologic response rate. The majority of those who failed treatment failed so, not because there was virologic relapse, but because of, uh, for example, medication non-adherence, discontinuing the medication course. Actual virologic relapse, shown in the green, was very uncommon in this study. Also, you notice that uh, without regard for whether the patient was on ribavirin or not, comparing across these studies, or whether the treatment was for 12 or 24 weeks, there were high response rates. Now, if we move into the subset of patients in so-called cohort 2 who were treated uh, with more advanced liver disease, uh, bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis, 
you'll also see very high sustained virologic response rates four weeks, uh, in this case they've been reported four weeks after discontinuation of treatment. Uh, very few virologic relapses uh, were reported in this study. Uh, uh, and likewise, the, um, the, there didn't seem to be uh, a major difference in persons treated uh, who had had therapy before, the null responders, and those that were naive to treatment. Overall, very high uh, response rates in the 12-week arm of this uh, important study. These 167 patients collectively and their good experience with simipravir and cefosbuvir explains why uh, this combination was also recommended for the treatment of genotype 1 patients. Now, I'll point out that this was not an FDA-approved indication. These medications were not tested together in phase 3. So this recommendation was based on this experience of the 167 patients and the individual safety and efficacy experiences individually with cefosbuvir and the protease inhibitor simipravir. And that led the panel to conclude that that should be, uh, that and the safety of this combination led it to become one of the recommended uh, regimens for the treatment of genotype 1, the most common uh, genotype in the United States. Now, the way the, the, the uh, recommendations are structured is that in addition to recom recommended regimens, there's also a list, listing of alternative regimens. And an alternative regimen is considered uh, uh, to be uh, overall inferior, but perhaps in some patient populations might be uh, considered for treatment of, uh, in this instance, treatment-naive patients with genotype 1 hepatitis C. Those who were eligible to, eligible to receive interferon might, for example, benefit from simipravir for 12 weeks along with weight-based ribavirin uh, and pegylated interferon. This regimen is considered acceptable for those with genotype 1B hepatitis C infection or for those with genotype 1A in whom the Q80K polymorphism was not detected prior to treatment. Now that recommendation is based on these types of data. These are the phase three data uh, pulled uh, from the package insert. And you can see that, that when you compare simipravir, pagan interferon, to placebo, pagan interferon, there are uh, substantially higher sustained virologic response rates and those that get simipravir compared to those uh, who receive placebo. Uh, however, if you drop your eyes down to that subset of patients with genotype 1A uh, who had the Q80K uh, polymorphism uh, in the uh, quasi-species of uh, uh, infecting them before treatment, so they have a mutation in the protease uh, uh, that makes simipravir uh, essentially no better than placebo. So you can see that the sustained virologic response rates in this group with the Q80K polymorphism, 58%, uh, and those that got placebo, 52%, not statistically different. And for that reason, uh, 
for this group of individuals, simipravir is not recommended. That particular polymorphism does not occur uh, with genotype 1B or is extremely rare and therefore uh, uh, testing for it is not recommended in those with genotype 1B, unlike those with genotype 1A. Now, if, an, if the individual is ineligible uh, for interferon, another alternative, not uh, the recommended, but an alternative regimen for the treatment of, uh, initial treatment of persons with genotype 1 hepatitis C is daily cefospivir and weight-based ribavirin. So just cefospivir and ribavirin. This um, uh, regimen is considered to be uh, less effective than cefospivir simipravir, uh, particularly among patients with cirrhosis. And that's why it's downgraded to an alternative regimen as opposed to a, uh, one of the uh, preferred or recommended treatments. The data are based largely on this study uh, that was done uh, by the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and you can see that uh, a relatively small number of individuals receiving genotype 1 infection, receiving cefospivir and weight-based ribavirin, no, um, no interferon in this study. Uh, and this, the uh, virologic response rates both in an intent to treat and a per-protocol analysis. Response rates and the intent to treat, uh, uh, if you drop down to the critical 12 weeks and 24 weeks after treatment, you see that the um, uh, approximately two-thirds of individuals were able to achieve uh, sustained virologic response in the uh, intent to treat analysis. And so this is lower than, though, than the uh, amount in the uh, who achieve sustained virologic response rates in the pegylated interferon, ribavirin, and cefospivir for 12-week study. Uh, and though, even though it's dangerous to compare between studies of different individuals, no randomization, this uh, regimen nonetheless was considered to be, uh, based on all available evidence, this and at least one other study uh, to be uh, uh, an alternative for interferon ineligible individuals and uh, uh, inferior to the uh, preferred regimens. Now, in addition to uh, the recommended regimens and the alternative regimens, the, guide the guidance also provides information on regimens that are not considered to be uh, advisable. And those, you can see, are set aside in a red box. So when you go through the guidelines, you click on uh, initial treatment, and you look through, you'll see uh, that some of the guidance is bracketed in red. And this is meant to demark uh, treatments that we consider to be um, uh, not advisable, uh, at least in the United States. So for example, uh, pegylated interferon and ribavirin, with or without tilapavir or brisapavir for, 12, for 24 to 48 weeks, was considered to be something that we would no, no longer recommend now that we have additional alternatives, such as the use of simipavir or cefospavir, uh, that could be, uh, would be safer and possibly even more uh, efficacious. Likewise, we wouldn't be recommending uh, pegylated interferon ribavirin or direct uh, acting agent all by itself uh, for uh, some of those similar reasons or for the likelihood of 
developing resistance uh, with a DAA monotherapy. We also have recommendations for other genotypes, including genotype 2, for which the recommendation was cefospivir and weight-based ribavirin for 12 weeks, and genotype 3, for which the recommended regimen was cefospivir and weight-based ribavirin for 24 weeks. So 12 weeks for genotype 2, 24 weeks for genotype 3 infection. And those um, data are largely based on these studies and, and similar results from others uh, where persons being treated for the first time uh, or individuals who had previously failed treatment, whether they're cirrhotic or non-cirrhotic, uh, with genotype 2 infection had high sustained virologic response rates when given cefospivir and ribavirin for 12 weeks. So uh, patients being treated for the first time without cirrhosis, uh, a very small group uh, uh, being treated for the first time with cirrhosis, treatment, prior treatment failure individuals without cirrhosis, prior treatment failures with cirrhosis, uh, responding well to a uh, short 12-week course of cefospivir uh, and uh, ribavirin. For genotype 3, the recommendation is based largely on these types of data where patients were given cefospivir uh, and ribavirin for 24 weeks. And you can see high rates of uh, sustained virologic response. There is a drop-off in treatment experienced individuals with cirrhosis. So these are persons that failed prior treatment with cirrhosis uh, for whom some individuals might consider the use of uh, interferon along with uh, a pegylated interferon along with ribavirin and cefospivir as being uh, preferred. So those, I'm not going to go through uh, the other genotypes, 4, 5, and 6, but uh, if you click on that um, initial treatment, you can uh, review those recommendations uh, when you have those kinds of patients. We also have recommendations for treatment of, uh, retreatment of patients who have previously uh, failed prior therapy. And uh, the re recommended regimen, for example, for genotype 1, for individuals who failed therapy with or without a prior HCV protease inhibitor, is cefospivir plus semiprevir uh, with or without weight-based ribavirin. Now this recommendation, like the one for initial treatment, it really hinges on those 167 patients that I uh, already showed you uh, the results of. You'll remember that uh, among them were patients who had previously failed treatment with genotype 1 hepatitis C and uh, who responded nonetheless, responded very well to semiprevir uh, and cefospivir, and there didn't, it wasn't evident from that rather small study whether or not ribavirin provided any additional uh, benefit or uh, if uh, 24 weeks was superior to 12. So uh, there's some uncertainty, but nonetheless, it, this is considered to be the uh, recommended regimen. Now some uh, may have noticed that this also says with or without protease inhibitor. So in other words, an individual who failed um, prior treatment 
with pegylated interferon, ribavirin, and one of the uh, early generation uh, protease inhibitors like bosapavir or tilapavir. Now that's an even more difficult um, question to answer because semipravir is a protease inhibitor and it could, uh, uh, resistance to the bosapavir or tilapavir could also confer uh, resistance to semipravir and weaken this regimen. And so that once again uh, underscores that these, this guidance is provided when a decision to treat has already been made. You are going to treat that patient and the question is how. It does not mean that it's correct at this moment to treat every patient with these characteristics and certainly a number of uh, experts uh, would suggest that an individual that failed uh, prior treatment with pegylated interferon, ribavirin, and a protease inhibitor uh, actually wait for medications that are forthcoming uh, that would be predicted uh, to work uh, w without cross-reacting protease uh, in, uh, uh, resistance. Likewise, there's recommendations for retreatment of genotype 2 with cefospavir uh, and weight-based ribavirin uh, and uh, for retreatment of genotype 3, now cefospavir and weight-based ribavirin for 24 compared to 12 weeks. You'll notice that these also are similar to the recommendations for initial treatment of uh, individuals with genotype 2 and 3 uh, in infection. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that there's also recommendations for unique populations, including patients that have HIV co-infection, patients with renal insufficiency, and patients with uh, cirrhosis and decompensated cirrhosis uh, under transplant evaluation. Uh, relevant to many members uh, of the IDSA is the uh, HIV-HCV co-infected patient group. And uh, once again, I'd refer you to, for details to click on uh, this link, and it will and you enter that uh, aspect of the uh, of the website. I'll just highlight a few now recommended for genotype one uh, for those who are eligible to receive interferon is cefospavir, weight-based ribavirin, along with pegylated interferon. You'll notice that this. 12-week course of cefospavir, PEG, and ribavirin matches one of the recommended treatments for HIV-uninfected persons with genotype 1 chronic hepatitis C. And it's based on largely on these data, a limited number of patients treated in a single center with chronic hepatitis C and HIV. They were treated for 12 weeks with cefospavir, PEG, and ribavirin, and just as with all the cefospavir-based studies, all the patients taking their medications become undetectable while on treatment, and uh, in this particular instance, a small number relapsed uh, after treatment was discontinued. And this experience led the uh, expert panels to conclude that this was a recommended treatment for persons with genotype 1 hepatitis C and co-infection. The panel also uh, recommended the use of cefospavir and weight-based ribavirin for that patient group. In this instance, cefospavir and ribavirin 
for 24 weeks, uh, as well as the possibility of using cefospivir and sinipravir, just like we said for both initial and retreatment of genotype 1 in patients without HIV. And here we continue with the caveats um, that uh, the, the cefospivir and sinipravir uh, would, would have to be uh, considered in light of uh, drug interactions uh, that will be predicted with sumipravir and many of the HIV um, uh, antiretroviral uh, drugs, and in particular the HIV protease inhibitors as well as efavirenz. So you see in the guidelines it says that the sumipravir should only be used with uh, those for whom it doesn't have significant interactions, and that includes raltegavir, rapivirine, moravirac, uh, and pervitide. Tenofovir, amtricitabine, lamivudine, and abacavir. So these are the safe medications, and this interferon sparing regimen could be recommended in persons on this antiretroviral regimen um, who would be intolerant or unable to take the interferon-based pegylate interferon, uh, ribavirin, and cefospivir. Once again, this uh, experience uh, uh, is uh, for, for HIV co-infection is based on uh, limited data. These data were presented by Dr. Sokowski at the ASLD meeting uh, back in November. Uh, individuals with um, uh, uh, HIV and hepatitis C co-infection were treated with uh, cefospivir and ribavirin and reasonably high sustained virologic responses were achieved. You can see there were uh, uh, approximately a quarter of the patients had relapse in this study. Not so surprising, uh, it matches the experience in HIV uninfected individuals with genotype 1 who took cefospivir and ribavirin in that NIH study that I showed you a few slides back. Um, I'm, I'm uh, personally not a huge fan of uh, of this particular regimen. It's, it's terrific that there are data to support it um, in HIV co-infected individuals. It's terrific that cefospivir uh, doesn't have clinically significant uh, interactions with antiretroviral uh, regimens, but I'm uh, not such a big fan of this uh, big decrement uh, and, and high relapse rate um, and would personally favor the uh, Cefospivir, pegylate interferon, ribavirin, 12-week recommendation, or the semiprevir cefospivir recommendation, if possible. The same study uh, treated included some patients with genotype 2 infection who were also co-infected. Once again, high sustained virologic response rates, uh, and with genotype 3, once again, you see this decrement. Uh, patients who relapse after discontinuing the 12-week uh, the uh, arm. So certainly with genotype 3, we're going to need 24 weeks at least uh, of this uh, interferon sparing regimen. But for genotype 2, 12 seems to be sufficient. Uh, and and the, this is simply the, uh, a similar uh, experience now with genotype 3 treatment experienced individuals, but yet treated for 24 weeks, once again, uh, explaining why the 24-week arm is preferred for genotype 3 with cefospivir and ribavirin. Now I'm going to come back uh, once again to this point that I made in the beginning 
that uh, all of these recommendations um, assume that a decision to treat has been made. In, in many instances, as it says in the introduction to, to all the treatment um, recommendations in this guidance document, that uh, in some instances it's advisable to delay treatment uh, and to wait for, for newer uh, regimens that might be uh, offer additional options for particular uh, patient groups. I also mentioned that soon uh, we'll be able to uh, see the, the, the recommendations for which patients uh, should be treated now and which uh, should uh, wait for, for additional uh, treatments to come. Uh, but that issue brings up the question of what are those treatments that are, are to come and for clinicians having to make those decisions right now, uh, when, when, uh, what are they waiting for? What, what are the things that are coming that we need to be cognizant of today to make the right decision with our patients. This is an example. It's a, a combination of cefosfavir, that nucleotide inhibitor that I've been describing that was approved in December, uh, uh, along with uh, an NS5A acting uh, agent called ledipasvir. Uh, and this, these two compounds are now together in one pill uh, being used in uh, genotype 1 uh, infected individuals with and without ribavirin. And uh, the, the, these data have been both uh, published in, in Lancet in Phase 2 studies and recently uh, Phase 3 results have been released but not yet uh, published. And the bottom line in this instance is very high, very high sustained virologic response rates are achieved with this combination, uh, one pill once a day, uh, an NS5A agent com combined with uh, the nucleotide inhibitor, cefosbuvir. You can see that whether you treat for 8 or 12 weeks, whether you treat with or without ribavirin, you get high sustained virologic response rates. Likewise, even if you go into the most difficult to treat groups, such as those who have failed prior protease inhibitor-based treatments, and who have cirrhosis, you get high sustained virologic response rates that do not seem to be reliant on uh, the use of uh, ribavirin. So ribavirin-free, interferon-free regimens that uh, could be considered by the FDA in the forthcoming year and available in less than a year uh, for clinical practice. There's also uh, important uh, uh, alternative interferon-sparing regimens that are uh, likely to be uh, available in clinical practice in the next year. Uh, this is a study that shows uh, some published results of uh, use of an NS5A acting agent along with a protease inhibitor that's boosted by ritonavir and a non-nuke uh, uh, with and without ribavirin, and you can see that once again in all the arms of this uh, uh, phase two study, there were high sustained virologic response rates, did not seem to be dependent on ribavirin, uh, and uh, in, in most instances whether patients were being treated for the first time or in data that I'm not going to show you uh, retreated, that you could achieve high sustained virologic response rates. Same sorts of results have been uh, not published but reported um, from their phase three uh, data 
and this would represent yet another um, genotype 1 option that could be available uh, for patients who failed prior treatment or being treated for the first time uh, in, uh, available in the next year. So in summary, what I've tried to, to show you, first of all, is the availability of uh, online guidance from an expert panel. Uh, it's based on all available evidence uh, and should be uh, timely and help you with decisions in the care of, uh, of your patients with hepatitis C. I can tell you uh, I was involved in, in, in uh, helping to establish the, this guidance, and I've, but I've already used it myself when I've had uh, questions that have come up in clinic. Uh, it's, it's a real um, uh, reliable and, and terrific source of, of information. Uh, hepatitis C treatment is certainly uh, going to undergo an, a number of changes, even in the next few months, uh, and uh, we'll need this sort of uh, dynamic uh, source of information to keep up with it. We're going to continue this process of transitioning from interferon-based to interferon-free therapy, and we may also be rapidly heading towards ribavirin-free uh, therapy, and it'll be exciting to see that develop. We're still uh, prioritizing and differentiating treatment based on uh, HIV co-infection and based on whether someone uh, failed prior treatment and based on genotype. But increasingly you can start to see a landscape where those distinctives will become less and less important and will have uh, greater and greater uh, potency and greater and greater breadth of our regimens and, and increased simplicity. Now there's continued issues shifting uh, away from uh, uh, finding more efficacious treatments towards being able to find the patients that are infected with hepatitis C, emphasizing the importance of guidance that we have for birth cohort testing to identify persons who have hepatitis C but don't know it, and then to link them to care and to improve uh, uh, access to care for these individuals. And collectively, these also underscore the issue of the cost of therapy that's uh, become uh, increasingly important as we try to expand uh, treatment uptake uh, in various parts of our uh, population. So I'd like to uh, thank you very much for um, uh, your uh, uh, listening and participating. And uh, we'll now be able to, oh, and, and to remind you uh, of the forthcoming um, uh, webinar that uh, uh, Mamta Jane uh, from UT Southwestern is going to be presenting where she'll flesh out in greater detail uh, the uh, basis and best available information for treatment of patients uh, uh, for the first time. So um, thanks, thanks again, and, and please uh, feel free to contribute questions um, through the webinar now. Okay, so it looks like we've got one. Uh, what are the current guidelines for viral load testing as it applies to hepatitis C treatment? That's an excellent question, and it brings up um, uh, two points. First of all, what I didn't cover is it, on, the, on the website right now are recommendations for screening, testing, and linkage to care. And you'll see that in those, uh, there is a recommendation that everyone uh, who has a positive antibody test should receive at least one RNA test 
that uh, to confirm the presence of hepatitis C infection. For all intents and purposes, we recommend that that confirmation be done with a test that also provides information on the hep C viral load. And that's quite simply because we're also anticipating a treatment decision. Uh, and for monitoring treatment, we have historically needed to know the hepatitis C viral load so we could uh, evaluate the degree of reduction in viral load while monitoring therapy. It's possible we're going to find a, a time when we don't need to know the viral load as much as just knowing that there's ongoing replication. Um, but for, uh, because most of the assays that we use in the United States at least uh, also provide quantitative information, that's a practical uh, recommendation. In the next few months, we'll be providing information on how to monitor once you start treatment and, and the frequency with which viral load should be done and, and what other tests should be done and for which regimens, but we don't have that right now. It's also a, uh, a case that's been um, presented. It's a 61-year-old man with genotype 1B, chronic hepatitis C. Uh, this person had uh, stage 4 disease, so cirrhosis on liver biopsy, but the uh, cirrhosis is compensated, uh, child's PUA. This individual was given um, telapavir, uh, pegylated interferon, and ribavirin, uh, and the uh, uh, patient's viral load dropped, uh, but did not become undetectable at week 4. Uh, however, the patient developed ascites, uh, and um, they're now uh, wondering uh, what to do. So unfortunately, this story uh, is, not, is too familiar. Um, uh, we prioritize patients with cirrhosis to receive uh, pegylated interferon ribavirin and telapavir and or bocepavir when those medications were approved. We rushed uh, to treat the patients that we had that needed it the most, and unfortunately, uh, though it was admittedly less than 10% of all the patients, there was uh, still nonetheless uh, uh, a uh, 3 to 4% incidence of hepatic decompensation in individuals who were compensated at the beginning of therapy, making us concerned that we had actually um, precipitated that with our treatment. The consensus among most experts is to discontinue treatment at that point. Um, and, um, uh, and, and it looks like that might be what was uh, done in this instance. Uh, we also experienced a high rate of sig clinically significant anemia. In fact, in some studies, 30 to 40 percent of patients with cirrhosis who started uh, this type of a regimen ended up having to come off of treatment. And that's really one of the reasons why this uh, regimen has dropped down to, to a um, uh, a, a not recommended regimen going uh, within months from our preferred to our not recommended because of these side effects and the available of, uh, of a sofosbuvir peg riba combination for just 12 weeks that we think uh, would be safer. What would I do in this patient? I'd, so I would stop medication uh, and get them into a transplant uh, center for, for evaluation of possible transplant. Whether or not uh, treatment with, with uh, non-interferon-based treatment uh, is um, uh, advisable in patients who have decompensated 
that, that I would certainly leave that decision to the transplant center and would not try that on my own. Uh, there are issues with, for example, even uh, simiprevir and sofosprevir being used in patients with significant liver failure, and I, I would not do that uh, without substantial experience and preferably not without a, a protocol. So for the Infectious Diseases Society of America, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick. I hope you found the lecture by Dr. Thomas useful and continue to tune in for further topics. Thank you.